Hey friends, Nina here. Guess what? It's spooky season. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then you need to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklores, and hauntings of the American South. Not only is Southern Gothic a beautifully made podcast, it's hosted by my good friend, Brandon. With over a hundred episodes to dive into, Southern Gothic explores those crazy, unbelievable tales that your mima used to scare the pants off you with when you were a kid. But the podcast doesn't stop there. You'll actually journey deeper into the history of these Southern tales to find out the truth behind the lore. With episodes ranging from topics like the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, as well as deep dives into local lore from some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. There's an episode for everyone. So if you're ready for a little good old fashioned spooky Southern storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, be sure to check out Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is available on your favorite podcatcher. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. In the summer of 2013, Joy Blodgett arrived home from work for lunch to find that her teenage daughter was seemingly asleep in her bedroom. However, when she went to check on her, it became apparent that her daughter was deceased. Come with me to Hartford, Wisconsin, where a family learns that the people closest to them are not who they seem. At around 12.30 p.m. on the 15th of July, 2013, police from Hartford, Wisconsin, were alerted to a home on Wayside Drive. They were responding to a report of an unresponsive subject. When police arrived on scene, they found the lifeless body of 19-year-old Jesse Blodgett. Hartford police and the Hartford Fire Department attempted CPR, but to no avail. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Jesse was a talented musician who sang as well as played the violin and the piano. She also taught private music lessons to students and was in the process of pursuing a degree in fine arts at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Jesse was known to be a headstrong and confident young woman. She knew what she wanted to achieve in her life. She was a mentor both on and off stage. Her friend Yogi Vogelsang said, she had a lot of good friends with the young kids she did shows with. They inspired each other. She really touched the hearts of the older people, too. Jessie was close with her parents and her father, Buck, who would describe her as at the top of his list of best friends. Jessie was a feminist, and over the past year or so, she had really developed a strong voice on female empowerment, as well as fighting against male-on-female violence. As a matter of fact, 
Jesse was a founding member of the Kettle Moraine Voices for Justice, which supported projects that addressed violence against women. At 13 years of age, Jesse had decided to become a vegetarian and an advocate for animal rights. Jesse was also a very talented songwriter. The first song she ever wrote was titled Butterflies, and her parents always tried to encourage her to put it on a CD. But as Buck said, she wasn't into the recognition and fame. In 2009, she performed the song at a talent show. At the time of her death, she had been in the middle of a production of Fiddler on the Roof at the Shower Arts Center. There was a performance scheduled for the 19th and 20th of July, and they announced that the performance would be dedicated to Jesse. They would also invite the audience to contribute to two charities which would be designated by Jesse's parents. The show's director, Jerry Becker, stated, Absolutely wonderful actress, wonderful singer musician on both the piano, and violin. Jesse's body was transported to the medical examiner's office for a cause of death to be determined. Her mother, Joy, had returned home during her lunch break at work and found Jesse dead in her bed. The medical examiner, Bob Passant, would state that full autopsy results were pending the receipt of test results, but said the initial autopsy could not determine a cause of death. On the 19th, the Fiddler on the Roof performance went ahead as scheduled. Out of remembrance for Jessie, a single candle was placed on the spot where she would have stood to play the violin. Her parents decided that the two charities they wanted the audience to donate to were the Central Middle School Orchestra and a charity that combats male-on-female violence. Days later, investigators announced that Jessie's death was being treated as a homicide. Court documents would reveal that the night before she was found dead, Jessie had attended a cast party for Fiddler on the Roof and then returned home around 1 a.m. that morning. At around 8 a.m., when Jessie's mother, Joy, was headed out to work, she placed some clothing in her bedroom. She saw her daughter alone in bed. Then, when she returned at lunchtime, she found her daughter deceased in bed. Court documents also revealed that there appeared to be some kind of ligature mark on Jesse's neck, but a search of the home turned up no item which could have made such a mark. It was also revealed that a 46-year-old man had been interviewed in relation to the homicide. It was this man that Jesse had gone to the party with. He admitted to investigators working the case that he had been seated next to Jesse at the party and that at one point he had pulled her onto his lap. He told one of the investigators that he had a girlfriend back at home, and this girlfriend would be upset if she learned of his behavior that night. It was noted that this man did not show up for work the following day. Investigators were very tight-lipped about the case. Jesse's father, Buck, would appear on ABC's Good Morning America, where he stated, we have begun to develop some feelings about what we think may have happened, and that's made it easier. But we have to be patient and wait for it to come out. His words gave hope that developments had been made in the case. It was already known that this 46-year-old man had been questioned in relation to Jesse's murder, but he had not yet been named a suspect. Police Chief David Groves made a statement asking Hartford residents to be patient. 
He said that he understood that a lot of people had questions about the case, and he assured the community that information would be released when it was appropriate to do so. He stated, Ongoing investigations. You have to hold your cards close to the vest. You don't want people destroying any evidence, that type of thing, or developing alibis. On the 20th of July, a memorial service was held for Jesse. It was estimated that about a thousand people showed up to pay their respects. This was a true testament to how loved within the community she was. The family said that the outpouring of support they received was astounding, stating, We have a whole different feeling about Hartford now than we did two weeks ago. They credited their daughter's willingness to seek out new friends and her zest for being involved in absolutely everything for the big turnout. The family revealed that the community had raised $3,000 for the Central Middle School Orchestra and friends of abused families in West Bend. Before the end of the month, investigators announced they had arrested a man and charged him with Jesse's murder. Much of the community anticipated that it would be the 46-year-old man who had been interviewed early on. However, the man would be identified as 19-year-old Daniel Bartelt. It was revealed that he had actually been arrested on the 17th of July after he admitted to a separate attack on a woman in a Richfield Park on July 12th. He had approached a woman while armed with a knife and tackled her to the ground. The woman said she feared for her life and thought that he was going to kill her. After a struggle, she managed to disarm Bartelt, and he asked her, Can I just go? To which he replied, No, and kept a hold of the knife. Bartelt then attempted to get the knife back from the woman, and she refused to let it go before running to her car and fleeing the scene. The woman had been cut with a knife in the struggle and needed 15 stitches in her right hand. She also had a cut on the palm of her hand and road rash on her right elbow and right knee. She described the attack to police when she was in hospital and gave a description of her attacker. When Bartelt was questioned in relation to the attack, he said it was a spur-of-the-moment decision and claimed he had only wanted to scare the woman in the park. He was facing three felony counts in connection with that case. Bartelt would appear in court on the 30th of July where he would be charged with first-degree intentional homicide, as well as one count of attempted first-degree intentional homicide, one count of first-degree recklessly endangering safety, and one count of false imprisonment. Investigators said they did not yet have a motive in the murder, but said that Bartelt and Jesse had dated back when they were in high school at Hartford Union High. They had recently been spending time together. According to Bartelt, he was hoping they could begin dating again. They were considered friends and had both been active members in the music program. In fact, just two months earlier, they had recorded a song together and posted it on YouTube. The arrest came as a shock to Jesse's family, as well as people who knew both Jesse and Daniel. Patrick Kunkel, who was a former cross-country teammate at Hartford Union High School, said that Daniel was smart, athletic, and popular, and he could not reconcile him with the person who was accused of two violent crimes. He said, Everyone knew him as such a nice kid, so funny, so outgoing, it's just unbelievable. 
When Daniel was first interviewed, he claimed to investigators he had learned of Jessie's death through a friend and had attended a vigil for her at her own home on the 16th of July. Daniel's past certainly didn't portray him as a violent person. He had been named in the Daily News before for his accolades and accomplishments, having earned six scholarships and winning first place in radio announcing at the state forensics competition. It's easy to see why his arrest came as a surprise to the community. At this point, they finally revealed Jessie's cause of death. She had died from ligature strangulation, and while it had been reported in the media a ligature mark was found around her neck, it was also revealed there were ligature marks to her left wrist and her ankles. A search of the crime scene had uncovered a roll of tape underneath Jessie's bed, and a fingerprint on the roll of tape would match Daniel's. When Daniel became a suspect in the murder, he denied being at Jessie's home and said that he had gone to work at 6.30 a.m., but instead he went to Woodlawn Union Park in Hartford to read and write. He revealed that he'd pretended to have a job for the past several months, but he was actually unemployed. When they obtained a search warrant for his home, they found a blue t-shirt and a pair of shorts with red stains, as well as a book titled The Interpretation of Murder. They also found plastic cable zip ties, electrical tape, twine, and bald pieces of tape inside a grocery bag. Investigators then descended on Woodland Union Park, where Daniel claimed he had been on the morning Jesse's body was found. While at the park, they found a cereal box which contained paper towel. Beneath the paper towel, they found crumbled strips of tape, rope, wadded electrical tape, a roll of masking tape, antiseptic towels, and wrappers with red stains. One of those ropes had a homemade ball gag attached to it. Closed-circuit TV footage from the park would capture Daniel at the park. The ligatures from inside the cereal box would be compared to Jessie's injuries, and it would be determined they were consistent with her injuries. In addition to Daniel's fingerprints being found on the roll of tape underneath Jessie's bed, his fingerprints would be found on a piece of tape on the exterior of the homemade ball gag. His DNA profile would additionally be found on rope, the ball gag, a paper towel, and antiseptic wipes, while Jesse's DNA would be found on hairs on the tape, as well as in a blood stain on the rope. Among Daniel's possessions, investigators had found a disc that contained parts of what appeared to be a novel titled Red as Red by Joseph Bartelt. Joseph was Bartelt's middle name. Investigators said that a portion of the novel focused on Jessie and her college experience. Another section of the novel focused on a character named Dee, who would beat another character into a coma using a pillowcase which was filled with Lego. The complaint also disclosed that Daniel Bartelt's laptop had been recovered and examined. He had searched for terms such as serial killer Wikipedia and list of serial killers by number of victims. He had also searched for serial killers online by name. His parents would tell investigators that he had dropped out of University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point College after just one semester. He had returned home, and they said that his demeanor had changed, and they thought that he could have been suffering from depression. Bartelt would appear in court again for a bail hearing. He was being held on $750,000 bail, 
but District Attorney Mark Benson requested a bond in excess of $1 million. Daniel's defense lawyer, Gary Schmoss, said that his client didn't have a criminal record and requested a competency examination. Meanwhile, City Mayor Joseph Dodderman encouraged the community to come together and support Jesse's family. He said this was the first murder Hartford had seen in 15 years, and in the last 100 years, there had only been three murders in the city. While Jesse's parents were trying to come to terms with what had happened, they offered support for Bartelt's family, Buckwood State. Our hearts just break for Dan's family. We know that they've lost someone under different circumstances that seem unimaginable to us. He said that the family knew Daniel and could remember him fondly from middle school before freshman year. He said that this was the last thing they were going to say about Daniel because they didn't want to impede the criminal investigation. Buck and Joyce spoke about learning more about the murder through the court documents with Buck stating that the news was very disturbing. But, it shed a light on Daniel as well as their daughter's last moments on earth. He said, It was a hard day, but it was also a good day in that we learned more. We want to know everything. We want to know everything that happened, and we want a bright light to be shined in the darkest places so that healing can happen. Buck and Joy wanted to celebrate their daughter's life and remember how she lived as opposed to how she died. Buck said that he was motivated and hoped to remain motivated for the rest of his life and honor his daughter's legacy, to honor her life and death by doing one thing per day that he wouldn't have normally done in a bid to make the world a better place. He said that he wanted to make love defeat hate every single day. Buck and Joy also took the time to thank the investigators who had worked on the case for their diligence and hard work in making an arrest. A couple of days later, a candlelight walk was held in memory of Jesse. Around 500 people, including friends and family of Jesse, gathered at Westside Park as the sun was beginning to set. Buck said it was a night to celebrate the life of his daughter and for the community to begin the healing process. All of Hartford had been invited to the vigil and walk. The Rubicon River Trail was lined with luminarias and candles were handed out to everyone in attendance. Emotions in the crowd ran high as four songs that Jesse had recorded emanated from the speakers. Two of these songs were her original compositions, and the lyrics from one of those songs were very haunting. They read in part, Take a risk for every day. Throw the rest away. Take a chance to save your life. Don't say you can't. You'll be all right. Members of the Hartford Union High School Chorus sang two songs in Jesse's memory, while nearby, there was a table of volunteers collecting donations for the Jesse Blodgett Memorial Fund, which the proceeds would be going to the Central Middle School Orchestra Program and Friends of Abused Families. After the music, the crowd began the memorial walk, stretching out for about a quarter of a mile. It ended at the Shower Art and Activity Center where Jesse had been involved in Fiddler on the Roof. The director of the Hartford Players, Jerry Becker, presented the candle that had been placed on stage for the memorial shows to Jesse's parents and told them that Jesse had been a joy to have with them. Afterward, he led his company in a rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone, mixed with Sabbath Prayer, which was from Fiddler on the Roof. 
Sabbath prayer had been Jessie's favorite. The next month, Daniel appeared in court where it was announced that he was competent to stand trial. Shortly thereafter, he appeared in court once more, where he waived his right to a preliminary hearing and was bound over for trial. Daniel appeared in court a couple of weeks later where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to both the murder charges as well as the charges relating to the other attempted murder. This meant that he would be undergoing a psychiatric examination by a state psychiatrist. Meanwhile, another memorial walk was planned. Jesse loved walking the trails at Pike Lake State Park, and to honor her, the community took to the trails. The memorial walk was going to be part of the larger Drip Drop Trail Run. There was a $20 registration fee for individuals and a $35 fee for families. The money would be donated to the Love is Greater Than Hate Foundation, which was a fund set up in Jesse's memory to distribute money to the Central Middle School Orchestra and the Kettle Moraine Voices for Justice, which Jesse was a founding member of. Early the next year, it was announced that Bartelt would be facing two separate trials instead of one. His defense had argued that the two incidents were completely unrelated, but the prosecution had argued that it showed Daniel was attempting to become a serial killer. The judge, however, said the incidents were dissimilar other than the tape that was found at each scene. A few months later, his defense attorney, Gary Schmoss, filed a motion including one to change the trial venue. He argued that the pre-trial publicity in the case had impeded Daniel's right to a fair and impartial trial. His attorney also filed a motion to suppress oral and written statements that Bartelt had made to investigators. Judge Todd Martins ultimately ruled that the statements made to investigators were admissible. The statements had been made after Daniel had been arrested for the attack of the woman in the park. He had been read his Miranda rights. At an hour into the interview, Daniel asked for a lawyer and asked to leave, and it was at this point the interview was stopped. Judge Martins also denied the request for the trial to be moved. The trial began on August 11, 2014. In opening statements, the defense described Jesse and Bartelt as friends who were reconnecting and encouraging each other through their shared interest in the arts. He said that the scientific evidence they may hear during trial is not processed in an instant, and it's not like it is in crime shows on television. He asked the jury to consider what the difference was between circumstantial evidence and direct evidence. Assistant District Attorney Sandra Giernoth said in her opening statement that they were going to provide enough evidence to show that Bartelt had murdered Jesse. She said they had evidence containing DNA from both Bartelt and Jesse, including a climbing rope, tape, blood-stained wipes, and clippings from Jesse's fingernails. She stated, he wasn't only telling lies, but living one. The first witness called to testify was Joy, Jesse's mother. First, she spoke fondly of her daughter, painting a picture of who she was for the jury. She said that Jesse had been working to pay for school by teaching music lessons. She spoke of how she and Buck called their daughter Messy Jessie because of the state of her bedroom. She also compared her daughter to an activist hippie type from the 1970s. The 911 call that Joy placed after finding Jessie deceased in bed was played for the jury. She had desperately attempted CPR on her daughter, 
moving her body from the bed to the floor as she described to the 911 operator what she saw. She described Jessie's skin as being blue. Her skin was cold to the touch. Her hair was damp, and she had a swollen eye. She mentioned the lack of pulse and said it appeared as though there were strangulation marks on her neck. The heartache in Joy's voice is palpable as she tries her hardest to revive her child. Joy would tell the courtroom that she knew Daniel and knew they had dated back in high school. She said that on three recent occasions, she had come home from work at lunchtime and found Jesse and Daniel playing music together in the house. She said that on one of the occasions, there had been a conversation regarding her lunch schedule. On another day, she said that Daniel had tried to kiss Jesse and she rebuffed his advances. She testified that on the day after Jesse's murder, Daniel had come to a vigil at their home and told her he had been contacted by the police. She stated, I hugged him and I said, Don't worry. Daniel's own mother, Laura, would be called to testify by the prosecution. She stated that for months, Daniel had told her and his father that he had a job at a Huddersford engineering company when he did not have a job. She stated she only found out he was unemployed when investigators informed her. When the prosecutor asked if she was surprised when she found out the truth, she replied yes, because he was leaving every day, and I don't know where else he would have been going. He was leaving at the same time and seemed legitimate. She revealed that on the day of Jesse's death, Daniel had come home early, claiming he was only working half a day. She described her son as a private but obedient child who loved nothing more than reading. She said that when he didn't return to college early the previous year, he appeared to be depressed. She said to the court, I think he felt like he'd failed. She told the court that after he dropped out of university, she told him he needed to get a job. And in the beginning of 2013, he claimed that he had a job. Laura said that she and her husband had tried everything to create a happy and loving home for their two children, but said they were completely unaware of all the lies Daniel had been telling. She revealed that at the time of the murders, Daniel had a girlfriend named Ashley. Detective Richard Thickens would take the stand next. He said that when he interviewed Daniel, he appeared to be calm, but when he was speaking about Jesse, he started to make sniffling noises. However, he noticed that Daniel wasn't shedding any tears. Detective Thickens had been called to Jesse's home on the 15th of July, where he met with Hartford Police Sergeant Timothy Hayes. Here, he was informed that the circumstances surrounding Jesse's death were suspicious, and the home should be cordoned off as a crime scene. He entered Jesse's bedroom and found her on the floor with a red mark across her neck. District Attorney Mark Benson asked him, did you associate her injury with anything? To which he replied that he associated it with a ligature. He said that he searched the bedroom for some kind of ligature, such as a rope or cord, but he couldn't find a thing. He said it appeared as though someone had cleaned up the scene, probably taking the ligature with them as they left. It was two days later that he spoke with Daniel. He told Detective Thickens that he had left his home around 6.30 a.m. on the morning Jesse was killed and claimed he just drove around. He said he went to Woodlawn Union Park around 10 a.m. where he read and wrote and then left around noon. Following the interview, Detective Thickens obtained closed-circuit television footage from Woodlawn Union Park and then collected the garbage from the park. Inside the garbage, he found a cereal box which was stuffed with paper towel and rope. 
There was also a boot lace, a roll of masking tape, and wipes with blood stains on them. He presented the rope to the jury. There was a knot on each end of the rope, and he was asked if there was any significance to that. He replied, It would be a point to hold on to the rope. The prosecution next called Ashley Boldeg, a Wisconsin Department of Justice computer forensic analyst, to the witness stand. She told the jury that two days before the murder, Bartelt had researched serial killers on his computer. While examining his computer, she had also found pornographic searches for women being bound, raped, and strangled. She also found that on the 15th of July, Daniel had deleted a music file named Jesse's Song, which Jesse and Daniel sang together. Then, later that day at 3.04, Daniel viewed Jesse's Facebook profile picture. Testimony would also be heard from medical examiner Dr. Linda Beardzik, who had performed Jesse's autopsy. She said she had grouped Jesse's injuries into two types relative to strangulation. There were pattern and non-pattern. She said that the marks on her ankles were consistent with being tied together. She displayed a photograph of the back of Jesse's foot, and at the ankle there was a small cut where tissue was missing. The doctor also told the jury that bruises on Jesse's elbows and knees suggested that she had struggled for her life. Forensic evidence would also be presented during trial, and this was the most pivotal moment. Up until now, there was really only circumstantial evidence linking Daniel to the murder of Jesse. Deborah Corolla, a forensic analyst with the Wisconsin Crime Lab, testified that Daniel's DNA had been found underneath Jesse's fingernails, as well as on paper towels and blood-stained antiseptic wipes. A mix of his DNA and Jesse's DNA was found on climbing rope, which was found in the cereal box at Woodlawn Union Park. Hair, which was identified as belonging to Jesse, was found stuck to a roll of electrical tape, which was also found inside the cereal box. Bartelt's DNA would also be found in Jesse's genital area, and the prosecution stated that this was consistent with a sexual assault. After the prosecution and defense rested, it was now time for closing arguments. District Attorney Benson said that the evidence against Daniel was overwhelming. He told the jury to think about the 911 call that Joy had placed and the horror that she had experienced when finding her daughter's body. He stated, Criminal trials are about who, what, when, where, and how. The state does not need to answer why. He did suggest, however, that Daniel had been depressed and had searched for serial killers online and then chose Jesse as his victim because she was convenient. He said that he had watched videos of women being bound, raped, and strangled as instructional. Daniel's defense attorney, during his closing arguments, said that the state had relied solely on circumstantial evidence and that they had failed to provide a motivation. He said, What the state doesn't prove is more important than what they do prove. My conclusion is they failed. There are some big holes in that story but there can't be holes when they are asking you to return a verdict of guilty in a case of this magnitude. The jury deliberated for less than four hours before returning with a verdict. They found Daniel guilty of first-degree intentional homicide in the death of Jesse Blodgett. After the verdict was read out, the Blodgett and Bartelt families shared an embrace before they left the courtroom. 
As the sentencing phase was approaching, organizers and members of the Love is Greater Than Hate project, which was established in Jesse's honor, made an appearance at the Race to Safety at Regner Park in West Bend. There were 10 people who ran the race while representing Love is Greater Than Hate. The purpose of the annual race was to bring awareness to domestic violence. At the event, Buck stated, Love is and always will be stronger than hate. Don't wait for tragedy to share your love. Every day counts. No one is promised tomorrow. While the Love is Greater Than Hate project began just months after Jesse was killed, they were only able to go public properly after the guilty verdict. Buck explained that they had two missions. One was to raise awareness of and end male violence against women, and the other is to add more love, kindness, caring, and empathy to the world. A couple of days later, Daniel was back in court to be sentenced for the murder of Jesse. Her family was able to provide impact statements. Buck turned to Daniel and showed true resilience. He said, Dan, I forgive you as I have every single day. I believe there is good and bad in each of us, so I don't demonize or vilify you. I not only forgive you, I love you. Buck spoke about the abundance of support the family had received since Jesse had passed away and said that he would no longer be able to walk with Jesse after a stressful day at work. He would not see her come home during college breaks or one day see her get married and begin a family of her own. He said that for 457 days, he had seen his wife cry every day. Jesse's uncle, Dana, said that the first time he met Daniel was the day after Jesse was killed. He recoiled in horror as he recalled how he shook Daniel's hand, the very hand that had killed Jesse. He said that while Buck had forgiven Daniel, he had not and he would not. He said, You're a failure. You are now where you belong. Daniel was given the opportunity to speak. He looked directly at Jesse's parents and said, Buck, Joy, I can't give you the reasons you're looking for. There is no hiding from yourself in a tiny concrete cell. This jumpsuit that I'm wearing, these shackles, don't make me guilty. I know there's evidence that I can't refute that would make you believe that I am guilty. After his statement, Judge Todd Martins admonished Daniel for refusing to give Jesse's family the one thing they wanted, an apology. He instead had tried to profess his innocence, and, frankly, it was a slap in the face to Jesse's family, who had openly forgiven him and refused to say a bad word about him. At the hearing, the prosecution argued for life without parole, with District Attorney Gernoth describing the murder as horrifying and brutal. She described how Jesse was home alone sleeping and, at some point, became aware of Daniel in her presence and his intent. She stated, He was now standing in her room equipped with the instruments to kill her. It was clear Jesse was bound by the wrists and ankles. Once he bound her wrists, he was in control. He sexually assaulted her. To inflict this type of crime on her was an act to shame her, desecrate her body. Meanwhile, the defense wanted a more lenient sentence. Attorney Schmoss said that Daniel had no history of drug or alcohol abuse and no mental health issues, which was kind of ironic considering the fact that he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He said that Daniel was a member of the National Honor Society, 
and that he had participated in forensics and was described as a hard worker by a former employer. Judge Martins would sentence Daniel to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He said that he had decided on the sentence to ensure the community that another life would not be lost and because Daniel had refused to show a semblance of remorse. He said, shackles don't make you guilty. Evidence does. The mountain of evidence against you. When you say you're suffering more than you ever have before, it's nothing compared to the innocent people you've hurt, including your family. Just two days later, Daniel Bartelt pleaded guilty of first-degree recklessly endangering safety for attacking the woman in the Richfield Historical Park days before he murdered Jesse. For that, he received a five-year sentence. Daniel Bartelt is serving his sentence at the Wappen Correctional Institution in Wampen, Wisconsin. And friends, I try not to ask for much, but if you're enjoying the podcast, please take time to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher. It means a lot to me, and it helps listeners like you learn about the show and the cases shared here. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.